Hello, and you are listening to ScarJo a Go-Go, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. I'm Luke, and this week I'm talking about Iron Man 2. We're here to learn, not just to yarn, for our most loved celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe go. Let us take a brief moment to reflect on our journey so far. We began this show with a nine-year-old Scarlett Johansson playing a small role in the Elijah Wood Vehicle North in an episode that I dubbed The Acorn. And this was partly because round about that time, to be fair, she was roughly the size of an acorn and really was just an innocent little kid running around like a drunk, stuffing her face with cotton candy, ruthlessly squeezing a mustard bottle at a picnic table for no particular reason. And if you do recall that particular episode, I believe at least that she psychically solved a murder. And I also called that episode The Acorn because we knew then that this little unassuming thing was going to grow and grow into a proud and powerful metaphorical tree. And the great thing is, this isn't a finished story, she is still growing. For me, I see Scarlett's career so far as being split into three different and distinct acts. And act one is her climb to not just an adult, but also, of course, to becoming a celebrity, uh, most notably through independent films, culminating in the success of her role in Lost in Translation, which I, I think off the top of my head, is also her first role as a fully-fledged adult woman. And then Act 2 begins with Girl with a Pearl Earring. Uh, And that's the act that's probably been the least interesting period for me, as it's the more mainstream, star-laden act. This is where she gets to be in period dramas and romantic comedies and play femme fatales. And there's certainly moments of brilliance in this period. I think Match Point is a real highlight. Uh, I still love her in The Nanny Diaries. That surprised me. But I do think that's one of her better, more nuanced performances. But overall, in terms of what is asked of her characters in many of the films, in between those high points, uh, for me, there's not a huge amount of substance. So that second period is really where we have the films where I feel that the writers and directors have let her down. These are the, the people that have understood that she has appeal, but didn't always know how to best harness that appeal. They weren't able to capitalize on her strengths and surprises on the screen. And now, right now, episode 29, I believe that Iron Man 2 marks the beginning of the third act of her career. And that's not to say that, you know, this is her final act, that it's all about to be over. Uh, Shakespeare, he had five acts in his plays. He was totally comfortable with that. A lot of people say Shakespeare was pretty good. And I think this third act is characterized by, obviously, this blockbuster Black Widow period. But it's also punctuated with some really interesting smaller films. 
I see this as being the more confident, grounded, level Scarlet, who doesn't just have the power to headline in films, but also is discerning enough to decide what's going to work for her, and perhaps make better choices than have been made in the past. However, that's not to say that Black Widow, this character, this uh, Russian super spy agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., soon to be member of the Avengers, just bursts onto the scene, screen, both of those things, fully formed like that powerful aforementioned oak tree. No, it's still a seed, the Black Widow seed, and it needs to grow. Which is why, as we enter this new third phase, I have decided to dub this episode Iron Man 2 or Act 3, colon, the acorn, comma, part 2, comma, the acorning, Parentheses, special edition, close parentheses. Which totally makes sense, right? But first, I just want to jog your memory. When we last left Scarlet, she was trapped inside the bloated Starfield. He's just not that into you. A showcase of the sort of stereotypical mainstream gender politics you're likely to see repeated as slogans on coffee mugs and bumper stickers. She was pretty much just the other woman in that, and if you recall, just as she was going to get to sing at the end and actually do something unique, they put some narration and some different music over the top of the footage of her singing. Denied! So, something had to change. Scarlet needs to take control of her life again, of her career again, and it's been well documented that she actively campaigned for the role of Black Widow. Even to the point where she dyed her hair red before she was cast. This was to show just how keen she was and how great she could be in this role. Now, Iron Man 2 I've got a rocky relationship with. I've only seen it once prior to watching it again for this show. Uh, And that, of course, was when it uh, opened in the cinemas. And having high hopes for the film, I I really did come out of it feeling incredibly disappointed. I mean, that first Iron Man film is often held up as a a near-perfect superhero movie, certainly in terms of its structure, the character arc. So, you know, these are really big, rocket-powered boots to fill. And my memory of Iron Man 2, from the cinema showing, is that it's really a meandering film that feels largely improvised. And by that I mean it has really long, indulgent dialogue scenes that don't really go anywhere, they don't add to the story. And uh, there's very little Iron Man action in this thing. Now, I don't know if people remember, um, Favreau was originally slated to direct this and the Avengers film. Uh, Of course, they were incredibly happy with Jon Favreau's performance on Iron Man. Uh, The catch was, though, that Marvel had all these plans to bring the Avengers together. They needed to get Thor out. They needed to get Captain America out. So the timeline was very, very condensed at the beginning here. And John Favreau, actually, I think at the time was like, ah, how, how can I possibly do all these things? And um, I think he'd initially said that there's no way Iron Man 2 can come out at the date that they wanted it to. And it did. Marvel got their way. But I guess the, the rumor or the feeling is that it was at the expense of the film itself, that this was something that was a little bit undercooked and perhaps rushed in to get everything else on schedule. Obviously, by the time we hit Avengers, which is only two films away in terms of this show, 
uh, you know, Marvel's really in its groove and has really discovered what it is that makes these work and have kind of caught up. That's not my feeling going into this. Although I'm excited to watch it a second time. I'm, I did go in with an open mind. And although I was definitely intrigued by Scarlet in the Black Widow role uh, leading up to me seeing this film for the first time, I also recall being disappointed with her performance when I saw it in the cinema. Um, I'm sure I've even accused her of sleepwalking through this role before. However, that was before we started this really detailed study of Scarlett Johansson and her performances. And I think since then we've learned to dig a little deeper and really explore, you know, just what is it she's being given to do. And often the fault seems to lie more in the hands of the, the overall vision of the writer and the director. So look, let's get into this thing. Iron Man 2. This is really like the moment I've been waiting for. I really wanted to get into this Black Widow stuff. I think it's a really interesting character. And uh, and she certainly develops in an interesting way over time. I was actually about to suggest that before we start, we hit the Marvel website and have a look at the Black Widow character who uh, first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 52, which was in 1964. Her real name is Natalia Natasha Alianovna Romanova, alias is Natasha Romanoff. But I don't know if it's worth dwelling on any of this stuff, because A, it's all batshit insane, and B, there have been so many incarnations of this character that I don't know if we, we really have to worry about it. I'm happy with uh, just going along with the movie version and seeing what backstory uh, they come up with. Because uh, according to this on the Marvel side, she was born circa 1928, which, uh, you know, so she's looking incredibly good for her age. She's a super spy in a cat suit with a shady past. That's pretty much all you need to know. And they've hinted at her past in the movies. We'll talk about this later on. But we don't really know what direction the Marvel Cinematic Universe is going. Now, this film, Iron Man 2, it starts with Tony Stark, uh, but he's on the TV, on the TV of a Russian hovel, revealing his identity to the world as he did at the end of Iron Man 1, while a soon-to-be villainous Mickey Rourke watches from the shadows and then watches his father die. And during the opening titles, uh, we see Mickey Rourke building his villain, uh, villain suit very diligently and playing with his... Cock, a two, Australian bird. I strap one to each foot and ride them to work. And fourth billing here for Scarlet, which is not too bad considering all the people that are packed into this film. However, of course, we must now sit through a ton of events which have nothing to do with Scarlett Johansson or the Black Widow. So as always, I'm not going to give a blow-by-blow -blow account of the film. I'm just going to talk about her parts in any detail. But I want to give you a sense of it at the same time. And I was impressed. Like, Tony makes an amazing entrance in this film. You know, he smashes through the sky full of fireworks. He plants himself very hard on stage uh, amid dancing Ionette girls. Uh, then he gets his armor taken off by robot arms to reveal his tucks underneath and says, uh, it's good to be back. And I love this already. I, I remember this is where you're excited. This is where you're thinking this has the right energy, the right tone. Things are looking up at this stage, and very meta with the uh, dialogue here as well. Um, Tony slash RDJ makes the Phoenix metaphor, 
And this really is RDJ rising from the ashes. He's at the top of his game. It's hard to believe that he was in so much trouble in the past. However, if this film is just about Tony having good things happen to him, having a rad time, being a billionaire, there wouldn't be much to it. So his secret is that he's dying. His blood toxicity, it's all fucked up. And his shrapnel in his chest or whatever, or his, like, circular little light thing that powers him and stuff. I'm pissing off a lot of comic people right now. Did watch the movie. I didn't pay attention to that part. My note instead is, ooh, Olivia Munn. Thank you. Followed by, and Kate Mara. Thank you. Thank you. Followed by, and Gary Shandling. Seriously, this film has everything. You see the government. They see Tony as a threat. They want to take the Iron Man suit away from him. His rival, Justin Hammer, that's a very cool name, played by Sam Rockwell. He's trying to make his own robot suits in competition. I mean, Tony Stark, I would not give your problems to a monkey on a rock. Pepper Potts, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, she's on his back. Tony can't catch a break. But then, around 21 minutes into this thing, Tony is sparring with Happy, his chauffeur, bodyguard, played by John Favreau, the director of this film, reprising his role as Happy. They're in the boxing ring, and who should just stride in with a folder full of paperwork under her arm like it was absolutely nothing? Scarlett Johansson, uh, completely professional looking, a black skirt, tight, pale blue shirt, long red hair. She really looks stunning, and this is played up by the fact that John Favreau looks at her like she's stunning. He's all, stop the press, who's that? And it turns out that she is the notary that Pepper Paltrow has arranged so that uh, Tony can sign over the transfer papers of his company. He's so sick of her hounding him, he's giving her the company so that he can be irresponsible. And Scarlett's first line, we always talk about that, is I need you to initial each box. Which is ironic because now Tony is looking at her like he'd like to initial her box. You know what I'm saying? There's one for the Bro Hansons. Just threw that one out there for you. I apologize, Scarlett. Let's keep this respectful. Um, and she's pretty expressionless throughout this scene. It's really about her having this quite curt and professional manner throughout. But that's okay because... Although it doesn't give her a lot to do, let's not forget that this is a role within a role. Because she's a super spy, remember? She's undercover, not under the covers, Brohansons. Don't think that just because I threw you a bone a couple of seconds ago that I'm not going to put you back on your leash again. But yes, she is pretending to be this person. We're not supposed to know that she's the Black Widow super spy at this point, apart from the fact that, of course, she's been on all the posters and publicity material. What's your name, lady? blurts a hooded RDJ, like a schoolboy, and she replies, Natalie Rushman. So this is Natasha Romanoff posing as Natalie Rushman. That's kind of like James Bond saying, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, Bend, Jim Bend. Huh? Or you're watching Mission Impossible and Ethan Hunt's like, I'm going to disguise myself as Ethan Hawke. Get creative, Natasha. So Tony wants her to step into the ring, which she obliges, keeping it 
totally cool, all eye contact and the tiniest hint of smile. She clearly likes him and she's just killing it at this point. And doing so without dialogue. And I think that she is such a, like, classic movie superstar icon person that she really can do some of her best work silently. Especially the sultry stuff. She needs no words. And I also love it, just in terms of developing this character and the kind of strong female characters in this film that Paltrow tells Tony in confidence, Scarlet can't hear it at this point, that uh, she is from legal and a potentially very expensive sexual harassment lawsuit if you keep ogling her like that. And I like that Paltrow is the anchor here, that, that Pepper grounds everybody and, and keeps them on task. So it looks like Scarlet will have to fight Happy, John Favreau, the director, instead. And she's playing sort of pretty timid, pretty hard to read. Meanwhile, Tony is looking her up on the old Google machine, finds out she speaks a range of languages. Can you guess which is the first language that comes up? It is French. We should get 100 points every time a French reference comes up in a Scarlett Johansson film. Pretty much every film without fail. He also discovers her lingerie photo shoot, which is just flashed up for a second on the screen and yet probably took some lucky members of the production team at least an afternoon to shoot with her. And her takedown on Happy is absolutely wonderful because she looks so unassuming. She's not even looking at him and he throws a punch and she twists his fists and puts her thighs around his neck and takes him down in like a second. And there's real impact there. Like he hits the ground hard and then she just wonderfully just gets up, tucks in her shirt, climbs out of the ring again like it was absolutely nothing. And as Tony signs the papers, which is, you know, what she was there for, she's still just that little bit flirty with him. And after a lingering look, she waltzes out of the scene. And I really love this as well, where he goes, I want one. And Paltrow goes, no. But it's actually, you know, my theory going into this was that John Favreau, has a bit of a crush on Scarlet. And I think we'll revisit this when we get to Chef. And I mean, God, that's not a big call, right? Like, who could blame him? Yes, of course he has a crush on her. But I do wonder if... I, I feel like Scarlet works best with directors that are not in any way intimidated by her. And conversely, I think she works best with directors that she's completely 100% comfortable and can be herself with. When we get to a film like Captain America 2, The Winter Soldier, I do not feel like those directors are intimidated by her. And I feel from everything I've seen in the B-roll footage, etc., that she is relaxed and having a heap of fun. This time, I'm not 100% sure, because you know what happens when you're around a girl that you just think is absolutely stunning, and you do feel a bit intimidated then you're probably not going to pick apart their performance to the level that you need to or perhaps push them as hard as you might need to, or make them take crazy risks because you might not feel comfortable, you might not know if they're comfortable. I kind of wonder if something was held back in this film. I mean, we're not there yet. Let's keep going and, and see if that's something that um, makes itself more evident. And by the way, nearly 30 minutes into this film and no action sequences yet. And I know that definitely frustrated me on the first viewing. That said, watching it again so far, first 30 minutes, I'm really enjoying this film. And I'm really enjoying just getting to know the characters and hanging out with these characters again. 
I like Tony Stark so much that I'm not too concerned that he hasn't been flying around punching things as Iron Man yet. At this point, the film has a good tempo. And nor was I expecting Scarlet to return to the screen so quickly. Uh, As Tony arrives in Monaco for the Grand Prix, uh, he enters the hotel and Scarlet is there waiting for him in a red dress. This is a costume, a part of the film I didn't remember at all. And she greets him, uh, she briefs him on what's going to be happening. She's still staying very light, very professional. There's not a single hint of Black Widow yet, and no real personality beyond this kind of um, very efficient PA kind of character. And then she gets left in the background as Tony and Pepper head to the bar and get intercepted by Sam Rockwell's Justin Hammer. Very soon after, we see Gwyneth um, grilling Scarlet about Tony driving in the race. But that, again, this isn't about Scarlet's character at this point. This is really just giving Gwyneth someone to bounce her ideas off. And Scarlet's very flustered with the idea of Tony putting himself in danger, but still professional. She says she's going to, you know, get to the bottom of this. So this is our first action sequence is during this Grand Prix. And finally, Whiplash, which is Mickey Rourke's persona. He's got a harness and these electrical whips comes out onto the track starts chopping up cars and being a badass um something just a side note and this doesn't involve scarlet i just thought this was interesting when i'm looking at the film um tony stark wears a blue suit and drives a blue and white car in this race and the trivia page on uh imdb says that this was at robert downey jr's insistence that the team wanted to give him a red car and he said no And I just think that we've talked about colour and meaning of colour in some of these films before. And I just want to say that I really think that Robert Downey Jr. was right. There's something about him in the blue where he seems far more vulnerable when he gets attacked because he's not Iron Man here. We're not being reminded of Iron Man. We're very much seeing him just in the Tony Stark persona. And I think that raises the stakes. And meanwhile... Gwyneth and Happy are racing towards him to give him the suitcase suit, which is a red suitcase. And it's that red case which is the reminder of Iron Man. And it really makes that red case stand out and be more important. Like we read it as the suit straight away and we know that this red item has to get to Tony. It's good art direction straight from RDJ himself. I love that. And... As I said, I've always felt this film was too hastily written, but when Tony ends up confronting Whiplash in the cell after this incident's resolved, I really do like the dialogue here. Mickey Rock's got a lot of interesting things to say, and he's quite scary, this whole, um, you come from a family of thieves and butchers, he accuses Tony of trying to rewrite history, Uh, he, he says this thing about if you make God bleed, the sharks will come. I felt like it was really a much needed shift in tone. It's a much-needed shift in Tony, for that matter. Do you see what I did there? Great thing if you're listening to this on an Apple device. Just press that little 15-second back button and enjoy that again. However, this is the turning point of the film. That was the setup. The first 35 minutes or so, quite solid in my opinion. But where does it go from here? Because this is the point where the film needed to find its momentum. It introduced everyone. It reminded us who who all these characters were. Introduced a couple of new ones. Set up the relationship. Set up the problem. Set up the villain. Now we need to be firing on, on all cylinders. But instead, it frustratingly slows down here. 
Tony is absolutely directionless in his conversation that follows with Pepper. And then Rockwell, uh, Justin Hammer, busts Whiplash out of prison, and then they have this real meandering conversation. And then we get start getting into all this sidetrack stuff, like um, Whiplash wants his bird, wants his cockatoo back. Now, this is one of those things that, if you read the behind-the-scenes stuff, Mickey Rourke came up with the idea of the bird. He felt his character needed a bird as a companion, something that he cared for, something that he loved. He apparently bought the bird with his own money. And I guess because he wanted to get the most out of his investment, he talks about this bird all the friggin' time. There are more scenes with this bird in it than there are with Scarlett Johansson. And that's a problem for me. We're in this situation now where you feel they're rapidly running out of ideas and that the ideas that they do have, these different threads, like Tony with the toxicity in his blood, Whiplash wanting revenge... Scarlet secretly doing this job for S.H.I.E.L.D. None of these things satisfyingly tie together at all. But when we cut back to a flustered Pepper at the Stark Mansion, Scarlet is there, still in this Natalie disguise, a black skirt and a pink shirt this time, laptop on her lap, talking into a cell phone. All business, they're doing all sorts of jobs, they're all frantic. Cheadle turns up as... um, Rhodes, Terence Howard role from last time. But everyone's just busy. This isn't her scene at all. This is just a reminder that Scarlet is still in the film. And then it's Tony's birthday and his health is really deteriorating at this stage. And it's Scarlet that helps him get ready. And they do have this little moment. I mean, she has been curt and professional, but she's flirty here. She's very close, very matter of fact. Tony ironically says, it's hard to get a read on you, which is kind of true. Like, how do you sum up this character? What are these characters' motives at this point? All we really know is that she's keeping his schedule and helping him find things. And we think that she's got a bit of a crush on him. We think that she's interested in him. But that thread's not going anywhere either. And then suddenly it seems for a moment that like she's just handing it to him on a platter. He says, if this was your last birthday party you were ever going to have, how would you celebrate it? And she says, very loaded as well, says, uh, I'd do whatever I wanted to do. And she quickly glances down, looks back up at him and goes, with whoever I wanted to do it with. And then like walks out quickly and you're just thinking, oh shit, Tony Stark. I like, did she just, did she just say, like, is she suggesting that you and her maybe, huh, huh, Tony? Shit, Tony, this is what you wanted, right? Like, you should do this. It's your birthday. What does he do? No. Instead, he gets drunk and DJs and pisses himself. You blew it, Tony. Gotta say as well, at this point, we're an hour into this film and we've only had that one three-minute action scene at the Grand Prix. Even the filmmakers at this point realise that they're blowing it in that regard. So they kind of invent this really awkward one by having Cheadle put on the silver grey armour, the armour that will soon become War Machine, and come and fight Drunk Tony and smash up the house. Why does he come and fight Drunk Tony? I guess the only reason is because Tony pissed in his suit and smashed some wine glasses. That apparently is a reason to steal one of his suits, come in, start fighting the man on his birthday and uh, blow up half of his house. Like, where did all this come from? If Rhodey was a true friend, he'd be knocking back a couple of beers with him, and then 
holding back his hair while Tony threw up in the toilet later. Don't punch your friend in the face on his birthday. And of course, the other issue is that this storyline, now with Tony being a drunk and having to fight his friend, is so separate from what's going on with Whiplash. He's the villain and he got introduced and it was quite a cool scene when he was introduced, but he's got absolutely nothing to do with this part of the film at all. In fact, in Tony's timeline, he's only spent a couple of minutes with Whiplash and had a brief conversation. So Whiplash is completely superfluous to the story at this point. And then things get even weirder. Tony hungover enjoys a donut in a giant donut. And Nick Fury, Sam Jackson, turns up and sits in a diner to have a conversation with him. Slight echo of Pulp Fiction there when you see them sitting opposite each other. Tony is in his Iron Man suit with the helmet off and Fury is wearing his, you know, big black jacket. He's got his eye patch. It looks kind of silly, but intentionally so. Um, Silly or even surreal. It's kind of surreal. And it's a whole new element into the story that hasn't been present up until then. And then Scarlett Johansson walks in as Black Widow. So this is her with the wrist gauntlets, wearing her blue tight catsuit. And all made up, she wears even more makeup, I think, as Black Widow than she does as uh, Natalie Rushman. And she just, as if it was nothing again, sits at the diner next to Fury. Her body language has changed. She's leaning forward. She's got her arms folded. But she's still playing it pretty monotone. Still that curt professional look. Perhaps she speaks a bit faster. Then she gets up and leaves, only returning to inject Tony with a solution to help him with his problem. And, oh, look, the issue I have with this, if this was a reveal that Natalie Rushman is actually super spy working for S.H.I.E.L.D. Natasha Romanoff, if, you know, we're seeing two different roles here and that veil has been lifted, that she's taken off the mask to reveal her true self... Shouldn't we be seeing a more dramatically different character? It's a dual role, but a single performance. And even more than that, it's just the most limp way to reveal this uh, suited up new superhero character for the first time. Like you think maybe there could have been an action sequence or something, or put Tony in peril, something where she has to reveal herself in an amazing way. But to have her just walk into the diner in her suit, which looks so out of place and costumey in that environment, and then just sidle up to Fury and just be like, hey, yeah, there's a spy. How you doing? It just seems like such a missed opportunity to me. Iron Man had a great entrance. Whiplash had a great great entrance. Black Widow is completely robbed of her first appearance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And this scene leaves me not understanding her character at all at this point. In fact, I think most of what I'm getting out of it, I'm bringing from my vague knowledge of the character from the comics. I don't know if the movie really sets it up in a particularly clear way. Like, we know she works for Fury. He even puts his arm around her to reinforce their allegiance when she first sits down. But if she's a spy, what did she achieve by being in Tony's employ? Like, why was she flirting with him constantly as well? And if he'd taken her up on it, would she have gone through with it? Or was that part of the act? Or was it real? 
Uh, it's probably pertinent to note at this point that um, I don't think she flirts with him anymore now that her true self has been revealed. So what is the distinction then, personality-wise, between the Black Widow and the role she was playing? And is she even differentiating between the two now? And look, if ultimately you're just going to go and find him and sit with him at a diner, why carry out this ruse at all? It's not like there was this crucial point where she had to blow her cover. She just goes, oh, okay, now we're doing it. For me, it seems like all she's really done is a few weeks of unnecessary paperwork for Tony's company. He's had this highly trained spy running around like his PA for a couple of weeks, but why? Like, what did she get out of that? I feel like Nick Fury's taken the piss. And speaking of unnecessary, we then cut away to Rockwell and Whiplash and more bird business, which is really at this point just water treading. This is where it feels improvised. It feels like Rockwell is about to go into a Monty Python dead parrot routine at this point. Then Fury leaves Scarlet as a floater at Stark. She's still wearing the widow suit as she goes back to the Stark mansion, but she's really posing quite stiffly in the suit at this point. I don't think she's got a walk down either. You think, okay, we've got this sexy character in a cat suit, but there's something stiff and awkward about it. And again, she just speaks professionally, curtly, formally, then leaves again. There's none of the dry wit or personality that we see in the future films, unfortunately. Although then Agent Coulson turns up, and he at least does have a character. Despite having only a couple of lines, he's far more developed than Black Widow is at this stage. So bless Agent Coulson, at least. Then there's another big talkie, Sam Rockwell, Justin Hammer scene. This is the indulgence scene where he shows all the weapons. And it adds very little apart from decking out War Machine with all the items that makes him War Machine. War Machine being the uh, grey Iron Man armour that he stole. And I feel like this could have been done by the government. And at the beginning of the scene, Rockwell has a lollipop. And I feel like this is Rockwell going, well, if Rock gets to do business with his bird, I want to do business with a lollipop. It's like the actors have run out of script, so now they're tripping over themselves, climbing over each other in order to add character quirks to try and keep this thing afloat when the story is just sagging everywhere. I don't even know what's going on here because now Rockwell's more excited about this Stark suit, but I thought he was putting all this money into his own robots that he was making. Like, what's going on? Which one does he want? It's unclear. And Howard Stark appears in archival footage. He's a totes prick in this too. Doesn't really get along with his son. Showed no love to his son. This is such a different character from what we see in Captain America onwards when he's played by um, Dominic Cooper. I also think there's a Winnebago man joke there as he uh, flubs one of the lions in the outtakes of this archival footage. And then just to add to all this madness... Robert Downey Jr. is like, well, if Mickey Rock gets a bird and Sam Rockwell gets a lollipop, then I really want some strawberries. And I'm going to improvise a 10-minute scene with Gwyneth Paltrow and I talking about strawberries. Thankfully, Scarlett, who is back in her cover now as the secretary type uh, PA person still working for Pepper, thankfully comes in and interrupts the strawberry scene before it goes on forever. And another irony, when Paltrow leaves, Tony tells Scarlett how great she is at this whole subterfuge, multiple roles thing, which would be really great if we were actually seeing multiple roles, if we were seeing a, a marked difference in the character at this point, but unfortunately we're not. And then Tony sees his dad's old junk, uh, rediscovers a new element, 
and then makes it using some crazy process that is completely impossible for me to follow that involves half of Cap's shield to prop up a, a pipe. So we are now nearly 90 minutes into this thing and so far we've had about six minutes of action. And now Tony has a triangle in his chest powering himself, uh, which Joss Whedon will later rip out claiming it is ass. And then finally we head to Stark Expo for the big climax. Scarlet arrives in her undercover PA mode, black dress, hair up. She's looking really great, but she's really just part of the uh, larger entourage at this point. She does get a look of concern though. They do cut to her looking concerned when Justin Hammer's drones, the robot drones, appear on the stage though. She's got this look on her face that just says, Man, I don't like the look of those drones. More confusion, Hammer is showing off both the drones to this appreciative audience and the stolen war machine suit, even though we know that that design is pure Stark, his rival. That would be like Steve Jobs getting up to show the new iPad and then going, oh, and we've also got this Android tablet over here and this thing that runs Windows as well. Do you imagine the audience would be like, Holy shit, Steve Jobs is a zombie! Get out! Because he's dead. <laughs> I didn't go where I was thinking it was going to go. So look, Iron Man shows up. He finally realizes these drones are bad news. He teams up with War Machine slash Don Cheadle. All shit blows up everywhere. Action finally. Scarlet comes in, sees Justin Hammer, Sam Rockwell, slams him into a desk backstage, and finally fucking acts like the badass that we were expecting. She's like getting that husky yell going on. She's like, what's happening? Who's behind all this? She sells it. She's intimidating. This is what we've been waiting for. And then Scarlet starts bossing around Happy slash John Favreau. She wants him to drive her to uh, Hammer's offices or whatever. And he's like, boot, and she's like, you want me to drive? And he's like, no, no, I'll drive. Why the, the hell does she need him to drive? In later films, she's like a motorbike, she's got a car, she jumps onto an alien spacecraft. Jesus, she doesn't need John Favreau to drive her around. Why even waste the time having the conversation? She should have just jumped into a vehicle and gunned it to this place. But no, instead, we get her stripping off in the back seat, changing into a suit, Favs sees her in a bra in the mirror and nearly crashes. And again, look, she looks great, but she hasn't had any funny lines or any real personality, which sucks. And that really, though, makes me look forward to Whedon's intervention. And I'm not a massive Whedon fan. I'm really not. And I have trouble with the way that Whedon often writes characters in the same voice. But I gotta give it to him. He saved this character. Well, he gave this character a character. Because the writer of this thing, I don't know what it is if they just weren't ambitious enough. Or maybe they were just, again, intimidated. Is this a case of them going, oh, well, she's the strong female and we want to keep her strong, we want to keep her focused and we don't want her, like, fucking around with jokes or anything like that. We just want to keep her strong. Sure. If that's the case, it's a nice intention. But it's not as interesting as she'll be later. But when she goes into the facility, this is really the moment we've been waiting for, both in the film and in this podcast. I mean, this is the Black Widow action scene. It's intercut with Happy punching a guy. It takes Happy the entire time that it takes Widow to take out about 10 guys for Happy to take out this one. And she's got great flips and slides. She's definitely a convincing enough action hero here 
this is the thing that shows us that this character has a lot of potential for the future. And um, you would hope so too, that this would be an impressive scene. It said that Scarlet trained for six months beforehand and continued to train during the shooting. That's a hell of a lot of training for what is only a couple of minutes of scene. But that's it, it's a cool scene. It lifts the film again. She does a great job. I didn't realize though, I mean, I've loved her look in this film. I've got posters and pictures of her from this film. But seeing it in action, in the action sequence, you realize just how wrong the hair and makeup is in this film. Like, the makeup's way too glam. Her eyelashes are way too big. And the curly hair, the longer hair, is so distracting. And when she's fighting, it flops around ridiculously like some kind of Raggedy Ann thing. Um, I'm so glad they addressed that. And I think they had a much better plan later on when they give her the more practical, shorter hair. But you know what? I love her coolness with it. As she strides away from one guy and maces another in the face, it really, that's your first real taste of the Black Widow character. That's where it works. That's where you see it. And at least, you know, she pretty much leaves us with her strongest scene fresh in our minds. And this certainly paves the way for better things to come. You know, her character is really alive now. She bursts into a room with the twin pistols drawn. She's out of breath. Then she's doing all this action typing. You know, she comes across as a smart, decisive character. She can beat up a bunch of people and hack into a computer. So these are all positives. This is good, but she still has the straight man lines. I don't know, maybe the writers are just like Russians. They got no sense of humor. And look, Iron Man and War Machine versus all the drones is pretty sweet too. Those sequences were story boarded by Jendi uh, Tartoski. Am I getting that right? Animation dude. Uh, and he can choreograph the shit out of an action scene. Full credit for that. Good guys win and Whiplash blows his own ass up. And look, it took two hours. But look at what Whiplash did in this film. He built a suit attacked Tony with it, went to jail, got out and built a better suit and some drones, attacked Tony and got killed. Like that's the plot. All of the plot concerning Whiplash. Good work, Whiplash. You know what? The fucking Riddler had bigger plans than that. And then at the end of the film, Pepper and Tony kiss. Part of me's thinking, Tony, man, you should have gone for Black Widow. Unless it was all an act and she didn't really want you to. And I don't know. Nobody knows. I'm very confused. But then, you know what? I thought about this and I thought, no, we should celebrate this decision. Not only because, of course, Tony goes for the person who is smart, funny, wonderful, and there for him all the time and more age appropriate, Gwyneth Paltrow. But also because I've criticized the fact that in so many of the recent movies that Scarlett's been in, she's been like always hooking up with not even just one of the guys, usually two or three of them. It's like she can't be in a movie without a guy winning her at the end. And while she might not have any funny lines, she doesn't talk about or pine about boys or men or anything like that. She has total independence, doesn't hook up with anything, anybody, anything, not even a dog or a cat. She has agency, she has direction, she gets the job done, and that is a rare thing in a recent film. So look, Top points to Iron Man 2 for that at least. And while we don't see her again, we do learn from Fury that she has submitted an assessment of Tony. So I guess that's why she was there. She was there to figure out whether he was appropriate for the Avengers. And, and the conclusion that she draws is that he's an unstable narcissist. 
Did she not see the news clips that the whole world saw at the beginning of the film? Everybody knows he's an unstable narcissist. I really think Fury's just been giving her mindless, busy work. And then last scene, Tony and Rhodey get medals. Because when you've run out of script, rip off Star Wars! No Iron Man 2, you're a bad Iron Man 2. So in conclusion, in terms of the movie overall, ah, yeah, I wanted to like it. I thought maybe second time it'd be okay. It's got a great first 30 minutes. I'm really on board with it then, but uh, it was rushed and it's not ambitious enough. There's no cause and effect. Nothing ties together in a satisfying way. It's a necessary stepping stone to get to the good stuff with Avengers and everything. And as far as Scarlet's concerned, this character has to start somewhere. This isn't the tree, but it's an acorn. And I got a feeling, I'm not a botanist or anything, but I got a feeling that there's a tree on the way. And I don't know, I guess a lot of characters, when you look at the movies, like franchise movies, they do take a little warming up. They do take a bit of time to develop. It's rare that you have a performance like the Heath Ledger Joker or something where... It just hits the ground running. But even then, you've got a character that so many people had played before that, that he was building on something. Whereas Scarlet's, you know, this character's fresh and they take their time to find it. Which ties into our housekeeping. I always ask, why was she cast? And in this case, it's like, why did she choose to do it? Or why did she want to do it? They say that Emily Blunt was originally the choice, but uh, Scarlet obviously rallied for this. And I think she wanted this role because she was smart. Like, she saw the potential in these films before probably a lot of other people glommed onto the, the fact that these were this was the new direction that uh, blockbuster films were going to take. And, and she's really successfully locked herself into a series of big mainstream blockbusters where she continues to be seen by everyone. And then at the same time, gets to go and explore smaller independent films on the side and really choose stuff that interests her and that has something for her to do and say. And in that respect, I think she's a genius. And who wouldn't want to be their own superhero? Especially in an environment where there are still hardly any female superheroes. And I think that in the future, she's actually going to be remembered as someone who helped pave the way. And I think in the past, there were certain actors that were reluctant to play superheroes that were worried that people would only think of them as that and were worried about the merchandise and all that sort of stuff. But I just think, wow, like to be an iconic character and to have all this merchandise and everything like that and leave your legacy in that way, she's accomplished that. She's already done that even just with the three movies we've seen and and the fourth one's just around the corner. But beyond that, she's had it both ways because she's also getting to do really interesting movies like Chef and like Under the Skin and like her. So she's got everything. Unbelievable. Other housekeeping. I'm going to put Scar Cabulary on hiatus unless something actually pops up that's worth adding to the lexicon. But I will stick with the three greatest feats this time. Number one, she literally smashed the director into the floor. And having seen this film for a second time, I can confidently attest to the fact that he had it coming. Two, she gets an awesome action sequence. She works six months before and during this film. So there it is. 
two minutes of heightened action which represent like a year of her life, and three, this isn't the greatest movie, but she staked out her place as the Black Widow, a character that is only going to continue, as we say in the theme song, to grow and grow and grow. Whoa. Okay, now next time, it's not Avengers, it is We Bought a Zoo, because even though she's Black Widow now, still gonna pay them bills by buying a zoo? I'm really dubious about this buying a zoo business. Where do you even buy a zoo? I'm calling bullshit on the buying of a zoo, but I don't know anything about the film. I haven't seen it. I'll find out next week. You'll find out along with me. How do you buy a zoo? What does it involve? Or is it just a lot of gubbins? I don't know. But hey, look, Cameron Crowe directed it. Of course she's going to want to work with Cameron Crowe. Are you kidding me? She's working with every director, so that makes sense. All right, look, thank you for listening. Please listen to the other shows. Uh, that is FP Cast every Monday. That's a general pop culture podcast with Jacinta and I doing movie news and reviews, mostly. Tuesdays is the Book Was Better podcast. Myself and a special guest, we read and make fun of the novelization of a film. We've got a very special one. On uh, Tuesday, we're doing E.T. with Courtney Coulson. And uh, please rate and review all the shows, especially this one, on iTunes. And you can find out everything you need to know at www.fruitlesspursuits.com. Links to all the shows, links to our Facebook discussion pages. You got no excuse. Thanks again. I love you. See you next time. And we'll buy a friggin' zoo together. Do you have to buy the animals separately? Or do you think they come in a package deal with the zoo? We'll find out. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe, go, go.